0: A book just announced as a nominee for the Pulitzer Prize is the one by our guest tonight, Michael B. Oren. The title of the new book is Six Days of War, June 1967 and the Making of the Modern Middle East. And of course, that is the case. The 67 War, which you detail here in uh, absolutely riveting, um, uh, with riveting information. In fact, the detail is overwhelming, uh, but uh, totally understandable and uh, I've rarely read a history of a war that makes it all so vivid and so real and also examines the larger ramifications of that war mm-hmm. after it was over as well as the causes of the war before they took to arms um, but uh, the you, it's co- commonly understood is it not that that war shaped the present situation in the Middle East the situation that has persisted from June 67 mm-hmm. to uh, indeed June, uh, 2002.
1: Oh. Good evening, Mel. <laughs> oh, you? Good to be here. Um, getting right down to work. Right. Getting right down to work. Um, I don't know how commonly understood it is. I, I think that's one of the reasons that the book has had uh, such an impact. That it, that it, it's opened up a few eyes. Um, the 1967 war, uh, to my mind, my conclusion is that it was really a threshold in the making of the modern Middle East. Um, it was a crucial juncture for several reasons. First of all, the obvious reason is that because of this war, as a result of the war, Israel came into possession of the territories that are so hotly disputed today, the focus of so much controversy, I violence, made bloodshed. I made
0: that point in my pre-introduction to mm-hmm. the program before the newscast. Uh, the Gaza Strip before 67... It was part of the Sinai area of Egypt. It was under a separate military administration. But it was Egyptian. It was uh, under Egyptian uh, control. Uh, control. Yeah. And, of course, the West Bank, where the Palestinians are, was part of Jordan, then called Transjordan.
1: It was, no, it was, it was actually, Jordan annexed the West Bank. Yeah. In December, uh, well, it occupied the West Bank in December 1948. It, it annexed it formally in April 1950, but that annexation was only recognized by two countries in the world, by Britain and by Pakistan. The United States never recognized Jordan yeah. as an annexation. But the people managed. who
0: lived there recognized Jordan because Jordan was They didn't Jordan have a lot, lot of choice,
1: no. Exactly. <laughs> and even
0: the, the Golan yeah. Heights, which is still occupied by Israel, was part uh, of Syria. Was Proper. part of Syria. Right. Uh, so nothing really has changed on the map since 67.
1: Well, Israel has given back Sinai. To the Egyptians that's a huge difference all of Sinai sure, that's correct. and that, they even closed
0: and, down a settlement which was planted in Sinai
1: they closed down a number of settlements There was one very large one Yamit right that was that was uh, evacuated in 1982 as part of the concluding uh, conclusion of the uh, the Camp David accords in 1979 the person who evacuated Yamit was then um, agricultural minister defense minister excuse me Ariel Sharon mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting um, now let me go back to your original question why do i think the Six Day War was such a crucial juncture in the formation of the modern Middle East. Apart from the territorial issues, the Six Day War spelled the end of the Arab-Israel conflict as principally an interstate conflict: Israel versus Jordan, Israel versus Syria, Israel versus Egypt, and began the emergence of what became what be, what has become today, an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's not by accident that it's a year after the conclusion of the war, in 1968, the PLO, under the leadership of Yasser Arafat emerges as such a potent force in Arab politics.
0: He starts right. leading a, a a raid from Lebanon over into northern Israel. He's 35 years old. The raid fails. raid fails.
1: Uh, but that was when he was the head of al Fatah In 1968, yeah. al Fatah becomes part of, of the PLO. The PLO had been created in 1964 by Nasser, basically as a shadow organization for, for, for Nasser's interest in the Arab world. The, the al Fat takes it over with Arafat and then it becomes this powerful force in the Arab world. So that's one direct result of the six-day war another direct result which had a, a profound impact on our lives was that the six-day war effectively debunked the Arab nationalist idea in its in its in in its most pristine form of nasserism right? the notion of it, this was a secular european style nationalist movement that aspired to unite all of the Arab countries under one leadership that it claimed that all the borders in the Middle East have been just had been had been were really Artificial Mm -hmm. lines drawn by the Europeans to serve their own imperialist interest.
0: In fact, for a while, if I remember correctly, he leagued with Syria and they created what was called the UAR, the United Arab Republic. And that was supposed to be a model for yet other Arab Mm -hmm. uh, nations to come together in one great uh, super nation run by
1: Nasser himself. True. They tried several unions. They all failed. But when the the Six-Day War effectively put the last nail in the coffin of Arab nationalism, it opened the door to the ascendancy of a new ideology, a new political idiom, which was Islamic. All right. And that this is a, is an impact that, that has really directly affected our lives both in the region and You say United. Islamic,
0: but uh, Islam was given full credit and full deference in the days before that by Nasser and all the others. They were all Muslim.
1: They were all Muslim and yet they, they took the Arab component of Middle Eastern identity, of Arab identity, and gave it preference. By the way, the Muslims condemn that. That's actually a, a mm-hmm. sacrilege in Islamic terms. Um,
0: Was there now, less of a sense on the, on the part of the uh, displaced Palestinians of Palestinian identity?
1: Much less so. The Palestinians, I, I've, been, I've been criticized. Some of the, the, the few items of criticism I've had on the book is that I've, I've played down the Palestinian end element. Unfortunately, there really wasn't much of a Palestinian element. The Palestinians in the 19-year interval between 1948 and 1967 were really in a state of shock and they weren't very well politically organized, they were deeply divided among themselves, and they really looked to Nasser as the savior, as the new Saladin that would liberate Palestine.
0: Well, history is great social forces grinding away and we can never fully predict them, Mm. unless we're Karl Marx. Um, he could predict the end, but he couldn't predict all the stages. I tried to pick in between.
1: <laughs> I tried to pick the past ones off. But yeah.
0: also, history is, according to the Carlylean view and even the Churchillian view, the doings of great men, of great historical actors. Mm-hmm. Let's look at two of the historical actors and let's see what the world looked like to them mm-hmm. uh, before the Six Day War uh, uh, was launched. Uh, Nasser whom we've already talked about, and a less colorful figure but one that you have great respect for, Mm -hmm. namely Levi Eshkol, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the same time. Uh, What did Nasser see, uh, say, in um, April, May, uh, leading up to June?
1: Well, Nasser is, in my book, uh, a, a tragic hero. And funny, I've been criticized a bit in Israel for being too sympathetic to Nasser, Mm -hmm. but I've been studying Nasser for well over 20 years now, and you can't help When you study historical figures, you get to know them quite intimately. You you read their mail, uh, and you develop affections or disaffections for them. And in the case of Nasser... You like the guy. Well... He was a, he was a, we don't have many Nassers in the world today. He was a, he was a larger in life figure. He came to power in Egypt as a young man, a man of immense charisma, a very handsome man, articulate, able to speak directly to the people, and he accomplished a, a great amount in his early days. He he ended the British occupation of Egypt. He uh, oh, wait
0: a minute. There he, was another guy. I forget his name, but uh, the more senior guy Naguib. of that revolt, who General Naguib. Naguib, and Nasser was Naguib's adjutant, but he knocked Naguib out after a he while. Naguib
1: was more a figurehead for these young officers. They thought so they were too young colon- to lead the country.
0: So the revolt yeah. of the colonels was essentially Nasser's.
1: Yes, leadership. he was one. He was the prime mover and shaker behind that. Uh, he, um, he he gave the Egyptians a sense of pride. He he tried to reform the Egyptian economy, which was moribund. Um, he he gave e- Egypt an international standing that it never had before. You have to remember that Nasser was the first native-born Egyptian leader in two thousand years. It's extraordinary. Well, uh, they knocked over uh, the Fat King Farouk. Wasn't who he was, who was wasn't of Albanian an ancestry?
0: No, no Egyptian blood. No, no Egyptian blood whatsoever. Really?
1: He was direct direct descendant of Muhammad Ali, uh-huh. who was an Albanian. All right. Um, so here was the first native Egyptian ruler in 2,000 years, and he, and he had great accomplishments. He, You, know, you, 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 can, you can gain, say, his accomplishments in the 1956 war, but from Egyptian perspective, from the Arab perspective, he had beaten the, the British, beaten the French, he had preserved Arab honor, and now he was aspiring to unite the Arab world. Ten sure. years later, however, yeah. we have a different Nasser. You have a Nasser who has failed in all his economic reforms. The Egyptian economy is in a tailspin. The union with Syria failed. The union with Iraq failed. There was a disastrous Egyptian intervention in the Yemen Civil War that completely tore asunder the the Arab world. Egyptians were using poison gas against other Arabs. Arab Nasser is sick. He's overweight. He's depressed. And so by the spring of 1967, Nasser is looking desperately to regain even a, 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 a scintilla of his former glory. And... His rivals in the Arab world, the Saudis, the Jordanians, are accusing him of "quote-unquote" hiding behind the skirts of a UN peacekeeping force, the United Nations Emergency Force, that had been placed in Sinai as a buffer between Egypt and Israel at the end of the 1956 war. That force enables Egypt- Israeli shipping to proceed through the Gulf of Aqaba to the port of Eilat. That's where Israel's getting its oil,
0: going uh, from uh, up the Straits of Tehran and right. going um, past. Egypt on the one side, the Sinai Peninsula, and Saudi Arabia on the other side.
1: Yeah. And the Egyptians had blockaded that, those straits uh, prior to the 1956 war. It was Israel's primary achievement yeah. 12, in that war was to open the straits, and that opened Israeli shipping not only through the Gulf of Aqaba, but all the way to Asia, India, and Africa. It also gave them oil supply. And oil supply through Iran, yeah. and Then that was the primary time. So here, this was a tremendous humiliation for Nasser. And when Nasser's rivals in the Middle East really stuck this right under his nose and said that he was hiding behind the skirts of the UN and not doing enough to liberate Palestine, it was a terrible affront to his dignity. And he sought any pretext to try to get rid of that force.
0: And one was to block the Straits again.
1: Well, he got the pretext from the Soviets. On May 12th, the Soviets tell him, for their own reasons, they give him a false report that they have learned of an Israeli plan to invade Syria and to capture the Syrian capital Damascus. And Nasser quickly ascertains that this is a false report. He sends his chief of staff to Syria. In Syria, they say, oh, this, there's nothing to it. But nevertheless, Nasser seizes this pretext. He puts 100,000 troops into Sinai, 1,000 tanks, 5,000 planes, and he evicts the UN forces. Once Egyptian soldiers are sitting astride the Straits of Tehran, they just can't sit there and watch Israeli ships pass under their noses, so they close the straits. That creates, for the Israelis, a causes belly a case of war
0: and some commercials uh, need to be done at this moment and when we come back we'll shift to the other side and uh, examine what reality looked like to Levi Eshkol and the men around him directly back to Michael Oren author of the new book Six Days of War that is by the way just published by Oxford University Press our guest tonight is Michael B. Oren who's done a very distinguished Mm -hmm. job of work with his new book, Six Days of War, June 1967 and the Making of the Modern Middle East. That is published by Oxford University Press. It is shortlisted, apparently, for the Pulitzer Prize. Also, it's about to make uh, the uh, New York Times uh, top ten bestseller list, as deservedly it should. Before we come on, come back to what I was setting up for you, I want to play something for you. Uh, on June 10th, we uh, talked with Henry Parrott, Who's a local lawyer who's um, a dean of a law school who's now running for Congress, and he'd just been over to Israel, and he came in and we chatted just for about 45 minutes. Took a few phone calls. Uh, here's one of the phone calls towards the end of the program, uh, and you'll hear me being rather impolite, but it's relevant to what we're talking about.
2: They they crossed the border, and that was the, that's one of the main reasons the Palestinians are kind of going crazy right
0: now. Sir, what do you know about the history of? Um, how they got there in the first place? You know anything about the 1967
2: war? Uh, just vague.
0: What can you tell me about it?
2: Uh, well, the the Jews just kind of like stepped into that area. They weren't. They're not from that area. They're like trespassers. No. They, they were the ones that first started uh, terrorism over there. Is that a fact? Yes. Uh, how
0: long have you felt this way?
2: Uh, since I knew about it.
0: Yeah. Well. Uh, you don't know what the 1967 war was about. You don't realize that Israel was for the fourth time invaded by Arab forces and that they responded uh, with a counter assault, which did in fact break the barriers and uh, get them into the West Bank area, which they occupied for a while, but then they withdrew. You're not aware of any of this, are you? Uh, no, No. Well, then the question is uh, what degree of sophistication is required for intelligent conversation on these issues? I was a little mm. severe and and, and schoolteacher-ish, which, after all, is what I do in real life. Mm. But um, he's at the far end of ignorance. Uh, but a, a I, lot of people are quite people, ignorant, aren't they?
1: I encounter people who are educated. I encounter American Jewish leaders oh. who have come to me and said, what was that Palestinian state that Israel occupied in 1967? American Jewish oh, yes. leaders. Oh, yes. I have a long list. Yes. <laughs> Of people who have displayed alarming ignorance about Sixty Seven, as if this was this something that happened in you know in mm-hmm. the 13th century in Byzantium. Um, it's not such ancient history, but there's a tremendous amount of uh, ignorance and myths about the the origins of the current situation in the Middle East, um, and this is what we've just heard is just one example. But
0: we've been talking about uh, what the clouds that were gathering and the key man. Uh, who was sort of controlling those clouds, namely uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. But of course, there isn't one man who makes a whole wartime situation. But on the other side, uh, in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, uh, Eshkol
1: and the people around him how do they perceive their situation? Well, let's talk about Levi Eshkol, because he's a he's a person who hasn't received much treatment in historical annals. I'm I'm trying to to remedy that. You now. seem quite impressed by him. I'm impressed. The, again, you you learn you you get to know people when you study them, and and the more I studied Eshkol, the more I was enamored of him, the more I really revered him. He was not your classic leader. In general who's not certainly not your, your typical israeli leader he did not have a, a glorious military past almost all of our leaders have been military leaders um he was not charismatic was he european, was not a great orator european born he spoke yiddish spoke his, pr- his first language was yiddish he often broke into yiddish he was a person of great humor you know he has that fame he is the author of a number of, of famous um israeli aphorism aphorisms that people repeat all the time but don't know that eshko was was the author of what them was the for one, example what was the one about abba iban that you quoted? Can't remember that one. It was something about him. They used to call him the the, the, the He used to call the 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 brilliant fool or something yeah. like this. But um, no, his famous one was um, hat. You know how to make a small fortune in Israel? You bring a large one. <laughs> 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 it's a good lie. Um, and he was extremely warm. The people who worked for him loved him. Um, and uh, he had he had a, he had a very uh, a Jewish soul. He had had an Orthodox upbringing. Uh, would often quote from the Bible. But he also was a man with a great grasp of realpolitik, a man of prudence, a man of restraint, a man of wisdom and sagacity. And uh, when, when, when Egypt, when, e- when Nasser seized on this false Russian report and put his army into Sinai, uh, a few days later, the, the generals of the, of the Israeli army, and these were big generals, Ariel Sharon, Isaac Rabin, Ezra Weitzman, come to Ezra's skull and say, if we wait, the Egyptians are going to dig in, eventually going to attack us, and they're going to destroy us. Mm -hmm. They started digging 14,000 graves in Tel Aviv National Park because they they were convinced that Egypt would use this. If Egypt was using poison gas on Arabs, they'd certainly use it on Jews. These were men who also had the trauma of the Holocaust in their minds. The the trauma of the 1948 war, Israel's costly war, in the back of their minds. The Israeli public was a traumatized public. There were huge demonstrations against Eshkol. Mothers and wives of, of reserve soldiers were protesting, why doesn't Eshkol go to war? And Eshkol came back to all of his critics, in the government, in the army, in the public, and said, we must wait. We have to wait, even though there are grave dangers involved, because we have to convince the world in general, and America in particular, that Israel has done everything to avoid this war, that Israel has exhausted all its diplomatic options before going to war. And he stood, here's this man, no great general, no great charismatic figure, in front of this mountain of opposition, and he didn't give a millimetre. And after the war, his position was vindicated. You know you know who Rechavam Zeevi was? Commonly known as Gandhi.
3: Mm-hmm. He was the
1: minister of tourism, the right-wing minister of tourism, who was assassinated by a yeah. Palestinian government. Quite recently. In yeah, quite recently. Yeah. I interviewed him a week before his murder. Mm-hmm. I interviewed him because in 1967, he was the deputy chief of operations of the Israeli Defense Forces. And since the chief of operations with Ezra Weitzman, who was an Air Force officer who never had been in a tank in his life, Zevi was really the man who designed the war on, on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I asked Zevi about Eshkol. How what was his perception of him? Zevi, who was a man who, you know, didn't admit mistakes easily, leaned back in his chair and sighed, he said, Everybody was wrong, and Eshkol was right. Yeah. And I think that just about sums it up.
0: Uh as part of the uh lead up to the war. Mm-hmm. You cover this, of course, you present this in the book as you present just about obviously every significant aspect of the lead up and then of the waging of the war itself. But just before it all begins, Eshkol sends his new foreign minister, Abba Iban, uh, to see de Gaulle in Paris, uh, then to see Wilson in London, Mm -hmm. and finally to see Lyndon Johnson uh, in Washington. Mm -hmm. He gets the real cold shoulder from. Uh, De Gaulle and in the past the French had been leagued with Israel and were sort of supplying them with a good deal of military equipment. In fact mm. they fight that war basically with French equipment as right. I remember. Not with American equipment. Yeah, right. But uh, De Gaulle tells them in essence uh, we're no longer interested in you. Right, we switch sides. We switch sides. All uh, the French. Our future lies <laughs> with the Arabs.
1: <laughs> All the French. Yeah. Right.
0: Wilson is sort of pro-Israeli but right. nothing much comes of it and when he gets to Washington Johnson has the heavy burden of the Vietnam War on.
1: Essentially, the Americans tell him, well, "There's little we can do for you. We're so bogged down in Vietnam." Yeah. They even came up with a plan for breaking the Egyptian blockade by mobilizing an international maritime convoy, um, and it was drawn from 28 nations. And the idea was, if the Egyptians fired on the convoy, then the U.S. Sixth Fleet, positioned in the Eastern Mediterranean, would strike back at the Egyptians. Yeah. The administration brought this to Capitol Hill, and all the senators, including Israel's biggest supporters on the Hill, Jacob Javits, Robert Kennedy, they all turned it down yeah. because of Vietnam. So there's little the Americans yeah. can do. It,
0: Javits and uh, also Goldberg, who is um, very important, by then he's uh, our representative to the UN at the UN, yeah. having gone off the Supreme Court right. to do that. Uh, finally, they decide to move. What uh,
1: June 5th is the first day, is it not? It is. What yeah. decides them to go? Well, there were a couple of milestones in the decision. Um, the continued Arab buildup. An important development was the decision of King Hussein of Jordan to place his army under Egyptian command and to actually move Egyptian forces into Jordan. That meant Israel was surrounded now on all sides. The Syrians were mobilized in the north. The Jordanian Egyptians were amassed in the, in the east haven't the Iraqis the
0: Haven't the Iraqis come over Jordan, and aren't they also on the line?
1: The Iraqis are sending over a large mechanized brigade. Yeah. But they've also placed their air force at the disposal of the Jordanians. So Mm -hmm. you have a combined army of close to to half a million men, thousands of tanks, uh, nine, eight hundred combat aircraft. You you say the balance was about three to one in favor of the Arab states. It was. It was. Though Israel had distinct advantages. Israel had supply lines that were very short. Israel had a unified command. The Arabs had really no unified Mm -hmm. command, no coordination between them. Uh, So Israel certainly had certain advantages. Um, The uh, the feeling was that even if the Arabs do not attack first, the minute the Palestinians conducted, say, a terrorist operation, Al-Fatah, Yasser Arafat and the terrorist and Israel wanted to strike back, then the entire mass of Arab armies would then fall upon Israel. So it wouldn't take much to start a war in this situation. All you needed was one sort of inadvertent rifle shot, and it could trigger off a whole war, and Israel would be a tremendous advantage if it, wa- it, is a disadvantage if it waited. So, in essence, it begins as a preemptive strike, does not it? It begins as a preemptive strike to take Nasser down. Yeah. To, to humiliate Nasser. And it the key, has a very limited objective.
0: And the key to that is to, uh,
1: developing a plan to destroy the Egyptian Air Force. It was known as Operation Focus in Hebrew. It was an extraordinarily daring <clears> plan. Uh, I compared it in the book to a Hail Mary play in, in football, but only yeah. American readers will understand that when we come to translate this into Hebrew, I don't know how to translate well, they it. They go out over the Mediterranean <laughs> and then... But they sent all of their planes, the entire Air Force, with the exception of eight planes that were left behind to guard the skies over Tel Aviv Mm -hmm. and Haifa. They sent all these planes out in the morning. Mm -hmm. They catch the Egyptians in between patrols. The Egyptian pilots are having coffee. The the Israelis had exquisite uh, intelligence about the Egyptian Air Force. They knew where every plane was. They knew the name of every pilot. They even knew the voices of the pilots. I was
0: amazed to learn from your book
1: that one of their
0: informants was the Masur to to (laughs) Gamal Abdel Nasser. There were a
1: number of forces. I couldn't to this day, the precise identity of Israel's sources in Egypt in 1967 are not known.
0: You've got another guy that you, you talk about who was a Jewish uh, survivor of the Holocaust mm. who gets into e- Egypt uh, and represents himself as a Nazi. As an ex-Nazi, Wolfgang Yeah. And he's on the ground for quite some
1: time with yes, military
0: sir. connections, yes, picking up intelligence mm. about the disposition of air power and,
1: yeah. and other things. I think that they were. Off, I think that the sources were even better than that. I, I interviewed Moti Hod, the the, the the person who commanded the Israeli Air Force mm-hmm. in 1967, and I asked him. He said they had real time intelligence about the Egyptian Air Force. And I said, "Okay, who are they?" He said, "No way, not going to tell you." Mm-hmm. Um, well, that means they had some Egyptians who were. They probably had some Egyptians to tell you the truth. And, Wh- and those they Egyptians had... are either alive, are still alive today, or their families yeah. are alive today, and they won't disclose it. Uh, uh,
0: weizmann uh, who later on is very important in Israeli politics and for a while serves as president of mm-hmm. Israel, um, he was. What was his role? Uh, in the assault on June 5th,
1: he he had a he didn't he had a marginal role. His his major role was he was when he his previous uh, position prior to becoming commander of operations, operations chief for the army, was as head of the air force. And as head of the air force, he was the architect of this operation focus. Yeah, which is really in 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 the annals of aerial warfare, uh, probably the most successful, most daring, most ambitious plan ever mounted. Um, so great credit goes to to uh, to Ezra Weitzman. During the war, he did he played a very much a peripheral role, um, and the and, and the and the operation succeeds exceeds even the wildest Israeli expectations it, by almost a hundred percent. We need to ask.
0: there is a destruction of a good portion, better than half of the Egyptian air force on that first day. In the first hour. In the first hour. Mm. This is a six days war. Uh, we can't do each of the six days in full and proper mm. detail. Though you can get all of that full and proper detail from this wonderfully readable book by Michael Oren, I've got a pause for some commercials, which are overdue. <coughs> then I will ask you to do an heroic feat—to mm-hmm. take five minutes with me, not interrupting you at all—to kind of quickly outline how the war played itself out over those—my um, pleasure—over those days. Mm-hmm. Because then, what I want to come to necessarily is the present situation and um, um, how the past has led to a, a time which uh, has been very troublesome, very difficult, and which one hopes will finally enter into some new phases leading towards resolution. Uh, we'll proceed with all of that with Michael Oren after these words. And my invitation or and or challenge to Michael Oren, author of Six Days of War, is to give me uh, those
1: six days in five minutes. Okay. Uh, and
0: I'll stay out of it.
1: computer you, completely. you time but me? Take us <laughs> through. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're on. All right. I think the important thing is to remember that the, that what later became the Six Day War was originally conceived by the Israelis as a two day war, as a 48 hour limited, really surgical strike, designed to break the stranglehold around I- around Israel by uh, by uh, attacking the Egyptian army, by neutralizing the Egyptian air force, and by Destroying the first of three Egyptian defense lines in Sinai, that's all. Nothing to do with the Gaza Strip, no taking the entire Sinai Peninsula, no taking the the Golan Heights, no seizing the West Bank, no entering or liberating the old city of Jerusalem. None of that was on the cards. In fact, there were strict instructions not to do that. How that 48 hours then blossomed and snowballed into the Six-Day War, in which Israel ultimately more than tripled its size, is a great story, and that's basically what the book is about. Um, uh, But let's see if I can do it. Um, as they say in the Talmud, on one foot. Okay. Simply put, Israel it, it succeeds, exceeds its expectations in the battle with Egypt on the first day of the war, June 5th. The air force is completely neutralized very, very quickly. The Israeli forces break through already that first defense line in the first day and find themselves getting ahead of their own contingency plans. Right. The generals actually have to pause in the desert to, to draw plans in the sand to figure out how the army is going to do this. The Egyptian army collapses. Nobody anticipated it. A general retreat is called, the Egyptian army, and suddenly the Egyptian army is streaming tens of thousands of men along the roads. So much so that Israeli armor has to sort of weave its way through Egyptian forces to get in front of them, to block them. An Extraordinary scene. Now, the Jordanian army, you recall, had been placed under Egyptian command. And in, their, in the, the Jordanian, uh, Egyptian commander of the Jordanian army, General Riyadh, receives false information from Cairo. Cairo tells them that the situation on the battlefield is exactly the opposite of the way it is, that, in fact, the Israeli air force has been destroyed, and that the Egyptian army is advancing up the West Bank and will soon enter southern Jerusalem. So General Riyadh opens a, a massive front on the Israeli side, begins to make advances into West Jerusalem. And Israel, after much hesitation, Israel, on the morning of June 5th, had sent a secret message to King Hussein telling him to stay out of the war, that nothing would happen to him if he did. All of a sudden, Israel finds itself the victim of an offensive on its very sensitive eastern front. This is where Israel is only eight miles wide. And uh, quickly, Israel uh, responds with the limited forces it had on that front. It actually brings paratroopers up from the Sinai. To the battle for Jerusalem, these are the the who eventually will take the old city, and uh, and the famous pictures, you know, along the Wailing Wall on the, on the Western Wall. Um, by the uh, Jordanians had opened fire from the city of Jenin. It's always in the news today. I know you're interested in what's happening today with long Tom guns on on Tel Aviv, and Israel had sent an armored column to silence those guns, and eventually they beat the Jordanians uh, so severely that the Jordanian army also collapsed. So almost by implosion, Israel finds itself being sucked into the West Bank as it follows the retreating of Jordanians across the Jordan River or up to the Jordan River, so that by the morning of June 7th, Israel has, has essentially conquered most of the West Bank It has surrounded the old city of Jerusalem. And now there's just a decision whether to go into the old city of Jerusalem. One of the interesting revelations of the book was that, that, that the Israeli government didn't leap at that opportunity, uh, but rather deliberated at length about it because they were afraid that if, the, is, if this Jewish army entered the old city, then the Christian world would be a severe backlash, particularly from the Vatican, because of the, the Christian holy sites there. And Levi and in another act I think of, of great daring and prudence, sent a secret message to King Hussein saying that if, if, he, if he would retake control of his own army, get rid of the Egyptian commanders, if he would engage in a peace process with Israel, Israel would not take the old city of Jerusalem. And Hussein never answered that message. So on the afternoon of uh, June of June 7th, the Israeli paratroopers entered the old city, and that concluded basically the fighting on the eastern front. On the northern front, the Golan Heights, on the morning of June 5th, uh, the Syrian guns atop the, atop the Golan Heights um, launched a or unleashed a massive uh, artillery barrage uh, across the Galilee. Assyrian planes also attacked Israeli cities um, and Israel decided not to respond. Uh, the orders again held that since Israel was already engaged on one front and then soon on a second front, it did not want a third front. The Syrian front was even more complicated because the Syrians were close allies of the Soviets. And many in the Israeli leadership, among them Moshe Dayan, feared that a direct clash with the Syrians would bring about direct Soviet military intervention against Israel. Well, Israel could maybe stand up against the Arabs, but against the Soviet Union, it didn't stand a chance. And uh, so they, they resisted any attempt to really strike back at the Syrians. On the morning of, of June 6th, Syrian soldiers actually crossed into, into Israel and attacked the kibbutz. It was the only time in the Six-Day War where, a, where an Arab army entered sovereign Israeli territory. And that attack was repulsed with, large, with heavy losses to the Syrians. But the, the shelling only intensified. On, on June 8th... As the Egyptian and the Jordanian fronts uh, were calming down already, the fighting had essentially ended, um, Moshe Dayan, who had strongly opposed any military offensive on the north, suddenly changed his mind. He received an intelligence report, as it turned out, a false intelligence report, that the Syrian army had broken and was in retreat. In fact, it was digging in very deep. He hadn't anticipated that that the Egyptian and Jordanian fronts would stabilize so quickly. He saw an opportunity, and quite unilaterally, he gave an order to so the, the commander of the northern command of the Israeli army. He bypassed the prime ministry, bypassed the chief of staff, Yitzhak Rabin, and gave the order for Israeli soldiers to proceed, proceed up the escarpment of the Golan Heights, a very sharp climb, under direct point-blank fire of the, of the Syrians. And the fact the Syrians, as I said, hadn't retreated, and it turned out to be a fierce and bloody battle. Um, it took a day and a half, uh, by June 10th, by the afternoon of June 10th, Israel sat astride a, a Israeli soldier sat astride a natural boundary of volcanic peaks that separated the Golan Heights from the from the Damascus Plateau, and that's where the border remains to this day. There you have it. No, nope. Be- beautifully <laughs>
0: uh, and effectively recounted. Thank you. But for all the rich detail, it's I'm happy to direct our listeners to this utterly readable book, Six mm-hmm. Days of War, uh, by Michael B. Oren, which as I said before, is published by Oxford University Press. But <clears throat> in that great victory uh, lies ultimately the seeds of many further problems. Uh, it's incredible, really, to think that um, the borders haven't changed from 67 to 2002. And, of course, the border most actively uh, troublesome is uh, the line between Israel proper and the West Bank and uh, the Palestinian Authority. We could do, go through a long rehearsal of all of the negotiations and of uh, Camp David. Of course, that essentially, the first Camp David uh, meetings with um, Sadat and so on, pacified the relationship between Israel and uh, Egypt. But um, more recently, um, there has been uh, a peace treaty with uh, Jordan. That was while King Hussein of Jordan was still alive. But the Aching and persisting problem is, of course, the Palestinian presence, which has grown fiercer in its dedication to um, what—to gaining full independence and um, standing clear of any and eliminating any Israeli occupation of the West Bank areas. Or is there real intention after all these years, as certainly is the avowed intention of the Islamic radical groups? pursue the Palestinian cause, namely Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, and possibly even the military arm of al-Fatah, the aim to, if not drive the Jews into the sea, at least disestablish the Jewish state of Israel. Uh, That seems to be what the Palestinians are committed to and what they are dedicated to.
1: Well, let me first say that, that you're absolutely right that the West Bank is qualitatively different. West Bank and Gaza are qualitatively different than the other areas captured by Israel in the Six-Day War. There was almost, there was negligible population in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, and on the Golan Heights, the, the indigenous population there picked up and fled before Israeli soldiers even arrived on the Golan Heights. Actually, an order went out not to harm the, the, the not in any way, um, to settle the, uh, disturb the native population I might have mentioned, there, and of course, they, 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 they ran. I might have mentioned the
0: Gaza Strip, which yeah. uh, is ocupi- which is also part of the aut- quasi-autonomous Palestinian realm, but uh, is separated from the body of the West Bank.
1: It's by, by the State of Israel. Yeah. It's a big wedge between them. Um, on June 19, 1967, the Israeli government voted um, to return all the Sinai Peninsula and all the Golan Heights to Egypt and Syria, respectively, in return for full peace treaties. At the same time, the Israeli government, this is in the summer of 1967, uh, embarked on a secret initiative to canvass 80 West Bank Palestinian leaders about the possibility of accepting a Palestinian autonomous entity that could lead potentially to a Palestinian independent state. This is in 1967. Now, the Egyptians and the Syrians turned down the Israeli offer. They met at Khartoum in Sudan at the end of the summer, and they passed the, the infamous or famous, however you look at it, three no's, no peace, no negotiations, no recognition of Israel. The, the reaction of the Palestinian notables was more nuanced. They told the Israelis that yes, they'd like to accept autonomy, that yes, they'd love to be independent, but if they signed any treaty with Israel, that they would be killed. And Arafat and Al-Fat, Al-Fatah were one of the agents of that, of that threat, and so they could not enter into that type of arrangement with the Israelis. Now the question is milk what has happened in the inter in the interim years? Have the Palestinians moved from a position where they could not make peace with Israel unless they lose their lives or have, have it, the situation has the situation substantively changed? There, there's one report about Yasser Arafat at the Camp David Accords of a, a talk in, in 2001 where he told President Clinton quote unquote "I could sign this piece of paper ending the conflict but then they will kill me." <laughs> and yeah I had a strong day de- reading this I had a strong deja vu about the summer of 19 19- 1967, how little things have changed. How
0: mm. really, basically, does one account for that? The, the, the stasis in anti-Israeli sentiment, which seems to be uh, the basic attitudinal orientation of what is commonly in the cliché called the Arab, or should one say, the
1: Palestinian street. Well, I could, I could, I could give you the Palestinian take on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Occasionally, I'm, I've been living in this area of the Middle East long enough and studying it long enough where I can see the Arab-Israeli conflict from both sides. Here's the Palestinian take on it. These European Jews came into our area of the world with the help of European imperialists, the British. There's no real Jewish people. There's no real Jewish history. They never were here. It's always a myth that there was a, a Jewish Commonwealth. Well, the Bible is. The Quran tells us that the Bible is a distortion. All right. And this is part of that distortion. The, Bible, the Quran is very explicit about that. Um, they come here. They take our land. They beat us militarily. And now. In a, in, a, in, a, in a conclusion of the conflict, they want us to settle for a small fraction of what was historically ours and rightfully ours and never theirs. Moreover, Islam tells us, if they are Islamic minded, if they're Muslim minded, Islam tells us that this is part of our heartland. It's part of Dar al Islam, the, 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 the land, the abode of Islam. Um, it must remain inviolately part of Islam. And to allow the Jews to remain there in a position of sovereignty is, is, is a blasphemy. And we must work as individual Muslims. That's what jihad is. We must work to avenge and correct this. In '67,
0: did ordinary Palestinians right. living on the West Bank, and for that matter, those Palestinians who remained in Israel, mm-hmm. uh, because there is about what is it a million or half a million Where? of of um, million. Palestinians living in Israel, close right? to a million, yes. close to a million, yeah. uh, is uh, w- was that pattern of sentiment and attitude that you've just reviewed? Uh, held deeply by them in '67 and on in the immediately ensuing years, or has it been built up by political activists and, for that matter, by re- uh, religious functionaries?
1: I think I think the seeds of it were certainly there, and it has it has developed since then. W- one of the outcomes of the Six Day War that's not often noted is that, that the Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, and in Israel pro- proper were for the first time since British Mandatory period c- they found themselves under one rule, Israeli rule. Mm-hmm. And that helped galvanize Palestinian national identity as never before. As if to
0: say that the Palestinian national identity in a way is a product of
1: 67. It's not a product of 67, but the 67 the war certainly gave a fill to yeah. and accelerated the development of Palestinian Now you just ran through identity. that
0: uh, representation of the Palestinian orientation, which mm-hmm. is kept alive of this conflict. Uh, You're a student of Middle Eastern Affairs. You've got a PhD in Middle Eastern history from Princeton University. Uh, You were for a while the director of the interreligious office of the Israeli government, if I remember correctly. Under Yitzhak Rabin. Mm -hmm. Under under Rabin's administration. do you find any justice? Can you take the role
1: of the other and find some justice in the Palestinian orientation? Certainly. I think it's very difficult for a Palestinian to say, listen, my, my grandfather um, lived in a village that is now an Israeli kibbutz, mm-hmm. and they're asking me to accept, say, 26% of historic Palestine, where I believe that, I be- that all of Palestine belongs to me. They want me to live under... Uh, uh, a secular political state when I want an Islamic state, Mm -hmm. ultimately the Islamic state will embrace all the Middle East and beyond, Um, I can see their point of view in many ways. It's a difficult decision, but the creation of nations, the maintaining and, um, and, and, and development of states is about difficult decisions. In 1947, the Zionist leadership decided to accept the UN partition plan, which offered the Jews really a fraction of what they hoped to achieve in their ancient homeland. But the Zionist leadership was sufficiently um, developed, sufficiently with, with, was possessed of an historic sense um, that they seized that opportunity and have been able to capitalize on it by creating this yeah. robust, industrious state. Um, the Palestinians have had many opportunities to do this. They have failed to seize them at the time, and they've paid a terrible price historically. If I were a Palestinian, what mm.
0: would really uh, stick in my craw more than anything else um, more than the history we've been talking about, or as much as it is what happened after '67, mm. in the development of Jewish settlements in the West Bank, mm. that I think is uh, that that I think was a mistake under, from the very beginning. Uh, though I know there are strategic reasons uh, which would have argued for those settlement initiatives. We must come uh, to. A few commercials once again, then a very brief newscast, and then we will return to Michael B. Oren. And by 10.15 or thereabouts, we uh, intend to get to the phones. We're opening the phone lines right now. The number, of course, 591-7200. 591-7200. If you want to put a question, offer a thought, uh, then get in there quickly. 591-7200. We return after this. I suppose the general question that I must raise and we've only got about 10 or 12 minutes to process it, is um, is the situation as it stands now, we don't have to rehearse in, uh, and uh, define the present situation, just about every listener knows where things stand. Uh, can the terrorism be ended? Uh, can the uh, Palestinian Authority be brought to a different attitude, to a different strategy? Is it possible that the President's offer threat mixed with offer, offer mixed with threat, as given in his speech of only a few days ago, uh, that that might unfreeze the standoff. Where do we go from here?
1: Well, let me say this first about, the, about President Bush's speech, because I'm, I'm of the opinion that that the speech is of potentially historical significance. Beyond Calling f- implicitly for Arafat's ouster, for uh, for call, for demanding an end to terror.
0: And to, they they announced the occupation. They announced
1: just today that they will do elections in January, and
0: he will be a candidate. Mm-hmm. That is Arafat will. That be they
1: again. they meaning the Palestinians announced. Yeah. Yeah, at the same time, the United States announced that they have evidence that Arafat wrote a check for twenty thousand dollars for the people who blew up that bus last week in Jerusalem that killed mm-hmm. twenty thousand twenty people. Um, beyond. This this call from Arafat Atalister, the 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 end of the occupation and end to terror, the the Bush's speech provides a or represents a radical departure from nearly 60 years of American diplomacy in the Middle East. If I can define that, I can summarize it as Americans since the creation of the State of Israel, since the late 40s, early 50s have proceeded along the assumption that you could take an Israeli leader and drag an Arab leader into a room with him and somehow browbeat them into signing a piece of paper and then you could throw a little money at them, both of them to make it feel better and that somehow this piece of paper is going to translate into peace in the Middle East. You, you, you understand what I'm talking about. We're talking about Camp David, we're talking about the sure. Oslo programs. Yeah. He's in the secret peace initiatives of the 1950s, the Alpha mm. and the Gamma program. It was precisely that. Is and it the present program uh, or potential program of the same order. No, no, no. This is different. This is fundamentally different. Listen, You have to see what this, the, the speech says. What the speech says is this, that there is no quick fix, that there is no It'll peace now... It'll take three years at, at three least. Years at the very least. Yeah. Right, that what we have to do is create the conditions conducive to peace. And those conditions are democracy, free economy, and basic human rights, which don't exist in the Arab world today. Because historically, democracies rarely go to war against one another. You create an, a middle class with economic interests in peace, in stability that you don't have. Uh, you ca- you create accountable, transparent governments that you do not have now. And this is a very mature approach to Middle East peacemaking. No more of you know there, there was that tendency of many administrations, and certainly the previous administration was particularly susceptible to this of, of wanting to get a, a wanting to get a good photo op on the White House lawn. And or Captain David or Camp David, mm-hmm. or get a Nobel Prize Prize, and, and, and I think that the, the administration has adopted a very um, patient and, and prudent policy, and I, I think it's only practical. Think, think about it for a second. If you were an Arab living in the Arab world, and you're some corrupt dictator who lords over you and doesn't give you any rights, signs a piece of paper with the Israelis, why should you give it any legitimacy? You don't even give legitimacy to the man right. who signed sign the he paper. But how you get from here to there? Obviously ah. Arafat and <laughs> his cabal
0: are in strong control. And uh, there is no major opposing and more democratic uh, elite a uh, potential elite mm-hmm. waiting in the wings that can somehow persuade them to give up their power in Ramallah. so how do you uh, how do how do the Palestinians who might want to a- adapt to this invitation
1: from Bush possibly move from here on? Well, there's certainly the, the problem that the people who are in control have all the guns, but we forget from that the Arafa has forty Thousand men under arms. Mm-hmm. His police force. His police force a pristine force. It hasn't been involved in the fighting at all, or, or only only tangentially. Yesterday, uh, four or five of these policemen were killed, but that, that's a, a very small number. This is this is a force that he keeps in reserve. If he wanted to use that force to suppress Hamas, to suppress uh, Islamic Jihad and the terrorists, he would. He could. He can do easily do it. And you, uh, and you think that force could do the job? It could do the job. You have to have the national will to to give it the order to do the job. You'd have to
0: kill. Members of Hamas and Hezbollah. He'd have some, to have a civil war in some sizeable well, yeah.
1: Let me give you, Mike, about it. I, I think we we talked about this earlier that in history, in the process of nation building, many nations go through civil strife as there are counter there are contending centers of power. In this country, um, Americans endured it between 1861 and 1865. Okay, and under the leadership of Abraham Lincoln, this country emerged as a united nation that survives to this day and leads the world. But without that type of leadership, without making that historic decision, there were plenty of people during Lincoln's time. McClellan, for example, who would, would have made peace with the Confederacy, would, would have accepted the fact that the United States was dissolved as a nation. Lincoln refused. In Israeli history, we had Ben-Gurion, who stood up to the Jewish underground organizations, to the Yirgun of Menachem Begin, and actually fired on them. They fired on the ship, the Altalena, the supply ship that was bringing in arms to the Irgun. All right. and that was an essential step, a painful step, a traumatic step, but an essential step on the road to nation building. Arafat has consistently, adamantly refused to take that step, I and mean, it's the it's the greatest failing for him, and uh, and the results have been have been have been tragic indeed. He. he uh, now the palestinians are have been given an opportunity that i don't think has been presented to, to any people anywhere in history but one of we'll the key elements in, in, in
0: the opportunity as offered is and get rid of arafat though his name wasn't used by the by the president it's clear that he was saying in effect this leadership not merely arafat but the guys mm-hmm. around him uh, is corrupt and uh, and doesn't really want peace you've got to su- you got to supplant this
1: leadership and bring in a new elite. Well, I think it's, it's a bitter pill for the Palestinians to, to sol- solve, to have some other country come along and tell you who you're going to be your leader. It's a difficult pill to follow, but the Americans are following a policy that, that has been acceptable throughout uh, international history, uh, through uh, the, the history of international affairs. It's a policy the America follows, that the Americans follows. it follows about Korea, well, many other, North Korea. You know a lot of Palestinians,
0: and you're over uh, the line very often, I know, and you mm-hmm. interviewed many Palestinians for this book, Six mm-hmm. Days of War. Do you know of enough people of... Uh, of uh, intellect and force and political ambition who might compose an alternative elite who would accept the president's invitation and begin to exert themselves in politics within the palestinian area so that we can get that new palestinian democracy uh, into operation within it's two or three years? It's to
1: quantify in numbers. Uh, there are people there who have a vision of two states living side by side. Can you name uh, them? Well, Mohammed Dahlan is a possible candidate. He's a, a strong man from, from Gaza. There's Jabul Rajoub, another warlord from the Ramallah area. Most of these people are men with divisions, all right? Unlike the Pope, these people have divisions. And, Div- uh, and divisions from you, what? They've they got from the forty thousand uh, men. They have their force? own militias too. They have access to weaponry. They have access to, to means of force, uh-huh. uh, as opposed to someone like Sari Naseba, who's a, an excellent individual. He's a person we'd love to sit down and talk with. The fellow we, in Jerusalem. But he represents only himself at yeah. this point, um, and that's a problem. We have, we, have, we have, in dealing with the Palestinian people, we, we, we face a number of fundamental difficulties. Listen, look, I think, I'm not a spokesman for the Israeli government. I'm not a spokesman for Ariel Sharon. I'm not even a spokesman for the state of Israel in any formal president. I'm simply a citizen of this state. I serve as a reservist in the army. My kids go to school on buses, and I'm frightened for them. But I do think that I represent a fair body of Israeli public opinion. I think a sizable majority of Israeli opinion. And that is when I say that I as an Israeli, recognize that there is such a thing as a Palestinian people. I recognize that historical injustices have been done to the Palestinian people, and I'm willing to help rectify those injustices to the degree that I can, consonant with my interests. And I'm willing to recognize the fact that mm-hmm. the Palestinians have a legitimate historical claim to part of the land on which I live. All right? Now, those are extraordinary realizations. All right? At Camp David in 2001, Ehud Barak offered to redivide Israel's capital. I don't think that that's ever happened in history. The question is, who on the Palestinian side says that about us? Who on the Palestinian side say, we recognize that there is a Palestine, a Jewish people? All right? Not Arafat. Arafat never uses the term Jewish people. In front of in front of, 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 of Bill Clinton, he said the Jews never lived in Jerusalem. There's never a temple in Jerusalem. There's no Jewish people. It's an historic myth. How many of them recognize the fact that historic justices have been done to the Jews, that Jews have suffered? All right? Persecution through history, in the Holocaust, there's a tremendous amount of Holocaust denial on the Arab side. And have suffered in the Arab world. And suffered in the Arab world. And thirdly, recognize that the Jews have a legitimate historical claim to at least part of this land. They're willing to separate. Those three fundamental realizations. I can count on one hand the number of Palestinians who say that. Let me pick up on something I planted before,
0: but then uh, hadn't didn't go back to the Israeli settlements in the West Bank area. Um, I think that was a mistake from the beginning, even though it may have seemed uh, militarily advantageous or defensively advantageous. Mm. Um, if I, and I said before, if I were a Palestinian, I would certainly feel, unless you get those settlements, uh, and all the quarter of a million people who now occupy, Jews who now occupy those settlements, unless you get them out of our area, we can't have a nation of our own.
1: Well, I, I believe, I, I agree with it, that the settlements are a major irritation. In certain ways, they were crucial for assuring Israel's security because Israel did not have defensible borders between after 1967. But I I can understand certainly the Palestinian uh, disappointment with anger at the settlement movement. Um, Though incidentally, the settlements occupy about 6.6 percent of the land. land, Yeah, Yeah. not very. They're not very big, but they're, they're certainly an irritant. However, again, in 2001, Prime Minister Ehud Barak, then Prime Minister Ehud Barak, offered to move. These settlements to consolidate them into two blocks, and then he was going to compensate the Palestinians for the land of these two blocks with area from sol- from sovereign Israel, area adjacent to the Gaza Strip in the Negev Desert. Altogether, the Palestinians would have come close to having 100% of the West Bank and Gaza. So the settlement issue was not the major stumbling block in the, in the failure of the Camp David. Was the palestinians said It's not the major stumbling block. The Major stumbling block was the existence of the state of Israel. Whether the, whether the Palestinians would. Return to Israel proper. We go to yeah. um, uh, another quick commercial break in
0: just a moment, and then on to the phones. And I will say uh, to our listeners again: we've got some lines taken, but some are still available. If you want to get in to pose a question or offer a thought, um, do by all means call, but do it quickly. Five nine one seventy two hundred five nine one seven two zero zero. If you hit the busy signal, then obviously your best tactic is to call again after we've uh, said good night to a prior caller. Five nine one seventy two hundred. Also, uh, if you're listening at some greater distance over the internet, um, if I'd love to have a, a message from Ramallah or from any place else uh, in that part of the world. Uh, though it's quite early in the morning there, I do know. Wherever you are, if you'd like to um, get to us via email, you can do that by um, simply addressing us at extension seven twenty one word extension seven two zero at tribune t r i b u n e dot com or five nine one seventy two hundred. The last question I want to put to you um, before we go to the phones. Um, can you see a time when, can you see this loosening up and somehow really undergoing some significant change? We've had hopes after hopes aroused and never fulfilled. Is, is the mix somehow altered now and is there some potential uh, motility in what has been a frozen situation?
1: Well, I I try to remind myself that I'm an optimistic person. That's not always easy. I am uh, heartened by the calls for democratization of Palestinian society, not just from the White House, but from within Palestinian society itself. Um, And therein, I think, lies the potential, um, albeit a distant potential at this point, uh, for a national reconciliation, for the end of violence in the Middle East. Beyond that, I see also many obstacles. Um, we were talking, mentioned, we were recalling before that Abba Ibn, the foreign minister, used to say that the Palestinians never lost an opportunity to lose an opportunity. And, and here's an extraordinary opportunity where the largest superpower in history has offered to help create this state, to give it financial aid, to, to see to its development, to, to ensure it a place among nations, if only the Palestinians do two things if they reform their governance and they stop terror. That's now that's quite an opportunity in my book I understand it's not it's not the easiest thing to do to have another power dictate who you're who it's not so much that the, the United States is dictating who should be the leader of the Palestinians but who, should not. who, who should not be yeah. all right the Palestinians have to have to make that decision. Arafat is clearly um, involved with terror has not stood up to terror um, and the Palestinians have to he has been a a, a, a profoundly corrupt leader who has squandered hundreds of millions of dollars in international aid, uh, siphoned it off to private bank accounts, paid off militiamen and warlords. Just horrible. It's a tragic, tragic situation. Um, but he has is to he make not that decision whether this man is going to be their leader just because the Americans say he shouldn't be, should we vote for him? Is he
0: not still beloved or somehow uh, seen as the charismatic center of their national hopes by most My of the Palestinians, I feel that the Palestinians people.
1: are ambivalent about about Arafat. On one hand, mm-hmm. he is the father of their national revolution, no question about it. He is the father of the national revolution. Uh, on the other hand, is deep resentment of the corruption in the Palestinian authority. Mm-hmm. There's, there's people look around mm-hmm. the the ruins of their economy and the rubbles of their neighborhood and say, why does this have to be? If Israel essentially offered us everything we were ostensibly demanding uh, two years ago. Again, my, historical, my perspective is historical. Um, even great leaders outlive their purposes. Right. Churchill is an example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not to compare our thought with Churchill, but great leaders, national leaders, do outlive their purposes.
0: Fascinating perspectives and uh, very significantly and articulately developed both in our conversation and, of course, in the uh, excellent new book, Six Days of War by Michael B. Oren. We'll be going directly to your calls um, and emails too, Michael. the number. Get those calls in quickly, and we will return, and on to the phones after this. And we return to our special guest of the evening, Michael B. Oren, O-R-E-N, whose uh, book that we've been drawing from, but we can't do full justice to it in the mere two hours interpolated with commercials that we've got available, whose book is titled Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. It's published by Oxford University Press. It has been universally hailed by all sorts of uh, uh, very significant people. And uh, we will, indeed, the lead endorsement is by Ehud Barak, the former uh, Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, we will go directly to the phones. Five nine one seventy two hundred. 7200 you are on the air. Good evening.
4: Hi, I'm Milt. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. The last time I talked with you was from Milwaukee 20 years ago. My goodness. So... Uh, Your radio still lives in your voice, but since then, we have email. Uh, I have two comments. First of all, uh, Eshkol's aphorisms. I think it was in in one of Tom Segov's books where uh, he describes uh, Eshkol as often saying to people coming into his office, listen, let's start at the end, and if we have time, we'll get to the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, he was a very clever, funny man. I want to talk about history and memory. Uh, that call that you replayed from that ignorant young man yeah. was quite disturbing. Uh, but
0: It's sort of par for the course.
4: Yeah, right. Nobody knows anything before... I must tell you,
0: it's par for the course even when I talked to some of my undergraduate students at the oh. University of Chicago.
4: Absolutely. Uh, I just want to give you this one memory of mine. I'm, uh, I remember very clearly, it was 1967, I was in New York, I was with the New York Times, and I was walking down Fifth Avenue, and I must tell you, I don't know if you're, the author here this evening has made this entirely clear, but these were really grave times. There were a couple of days there where, you know, it was, it was really, uh, many people thought that Israel wouldn't make it, that they would be wiped out. And I remember seeing Homer Bigart, a colleague, and a two, twice winner of the Pulitzer Prize coming up the street, and we stopped and chatted about the latest communiques, about whether there was any good news coming in. The final point about history is, uh, is that what's disturbing is not only the young people, but the young reporters, and not always the young reporters, who leave out that period. It's not, I think it was just within the last year, uh, Peter Jennings, in a routine description of some event, some incident uh, in the altercation, happened to say, and the, the Israelis are on land that, you know, many people think belong to the Palestinians and uh, he's 62, 61, I'm 68, you'd think he'd have some more perspective. At least, you know, to complete a story, you would put in the entire perspective. And uh, you find this particularly true among the younger reporters who are 35 or 30 at the BBC, as well as American networks, who never complete a story. And I'm not just saying it's only uh, the Israelis. It's, it probably applies to the Arabs and other situations as well. There's you, no round circle of historical insight.
0: Uh, you're suggesting that um, most of our press people, perhaps beyond a certain uh, age level, are not fully up to the job.
4: Yeah, well, that's, it's sad, but it's revealed uh, very painfully when you listen. So listen, I want to thank you, uh, and I hope a lot of people get this book.
0: We thank you for the call, sir. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Five nine one seventy two hundred is the number as we go to the next. Hello, you're on the air.
4: Guten Abend.
0: Guten Abend.
3: Alstest uh, den My question, uh, what I would like to bring out is, uh, I was wondering if your guest could analyze the Yom Kippur War, where Israel's position was also very car- precarious because they were caught by surprise. And... Uh, I was wondering if uh, he could analyze that, you know, and not uh, not extensively as his book, but I mean, th- perhaps a thumbnail sketch.
1: Interesting um, question. Uh, Moshe I'll Dian- hang
3: up and listen.
2: Hi, Ruther.
1: Yeah. Moshe Dayan, at the end of the Six-Day War, listed the reasons why Israel won the war. Among those reasons were the failure of the Egyptian army to or Egyptian leaders to adequately assess Israel's military capabilities and prowess, the... Uh, failure of the Egyptian army to seize the first strike, right, was very important, and uh, and those same factors six years later uh, were Israel's undoing in the in the early stages of the Yom Kippur War. Israel forfeited the the initial element of surprise uh, largely as a as a result of American pressure on Israel. They knew that the Egyptians and the Syrians were poised to attack, but Henry Kissinger at the time. Uh, Put tremendous pressure on Golda Meir, saying that the, the United States wouldn't and world opinion wouldn't support wouldn't support an Israeli first strike. So they forfeited, and many hundreds and, ultimately, thousands of Israelis died. Um, they also underestimated the power of the Egyptian army, the degree to which the Egyptian army had bounded back from its defeat in '67, and the Syrian army as well. It's interesting to uh, note that the great military achievement of that war was, in essence. Uh, run by Ariel Sharon, if I remember correctly. Yes, it was. He crossed the Suez Canal and and was able to surround the Egyptian Third Army, cut it off, uh, could have taken. About. Could have taken Cairo. Could have taken Cairo. Could have brought about the total collapse of the Egyptian army. Uh, really, the, the people who saved the Egyptian army from collapse were were were, were Richard Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they thought that if they could uh, restore, let enable the, the Egyptians to retain a sense of dignity and honor from the war, that they would have the sufficient sense of self that they could make make a peace treaty with Israel. And they were, weren't wrong with that vis a vis Sadat. You know, uh, uh,
0: there's something I wanted to raise with you just for a moment before we go back to the phones on five nine. One, seventy-two hundred. There's Sharon. A really, as a military man, a very effective mm-hmm. and innovative commander. Dayan was, uh, so many others who whom you admire in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something distinctive about the Israeli military leadership? Yes. Um, they, how did they develop their style?
1: I, I'll tell you I'll, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Now, do I get more than five minutes on that answer? Though. Well, <laughs> let's see what happens. But I have. Um, I now have a, a screenplay that I'm in the process of of, uh, of working on in in Hollywood recently pitched it to Oliver Stone, of all people. And the screenplay is, a, is the story of a, of a British general named Ward Wingate. Are you familiar with that oh, name? Sure, Ward Wingate
0: uh, of Burma, and then, of then later, Burma? later of Israel.
1: Well, actually, before, mm. formerly of Israel, and then of Ethiopia, Basel, yeah. and lastly of Burma, his plane yeah, yeah. crashed under very mysterious yeah. circumstances. A biblical like fanatic, among other things. A biblical fanatic, among other things, and a genius, mm-hmm. and, and a military genius. Um, and among his, his great accomplishments in life was he was really the founder of the Israeli mm. army. The, the Israeli army, it was Wingate who came along and said, we're going to create a lightning quick force that strikes at night, always in enemy's territory. We're going to do away with saluting. We're going to do away with marching. Everyone's going to call each other by their first names. We don't even care about insignia. All right? And we're going to be highly mobile. Junior officers can make have will have a tremendous amount of latitude in making important tactical decisions. A lot of daring. All right? A lot of esprit de corps. A lot of elan. And to this day, the Israeli army remains Wingatean in its outlook. It's one of the things that have drawn me to him as a, as a, first of all, as a historian, but also as a person who I think would be very engaging on the, on, on the screen. Um, uh, Moshe Dayan studied with Wingate. Yigal alone studied with Wingate. All, uh, six out of Israel's first ten chiefs of staff <laughs> studied with Wingate.
0: Were, were they in uh, uh,
1: Haganah or Palmach? The Palmach group directly out of Wingate. Some of them yeah. went into the Haganah, like like yeah. Dayan, but, 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 the, but, but his group
0: common. was the Palmach.
1: He was really the forerunner. He had a, he had a group called the Special Night Forces mm-hmm. that uh, that really reversed the Jews' defeat in the 1936-1939 Arab revolt. And and does this philosophy, does the Wingatean style,
0: uh, persevere? Yes. In. Uh, in uh, military training establishments,
1: yes. war colleges there's a, there's and so a, there's on. A, there's a strict division in, 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 the, in Israeli military uh, doctrine between those, between the Wingadian tradition and the Jewish Brigade tradition. Uh-huh. People who served in the British Army as part of the Jewish Brigade in World War II, which is much more of a, a brass polish, sort of spit mm-hmm. and polish. Um, it's very prevalent all in the, the Armored Eng- Corps, the, the artillery model. corps. It's interesting they both come out of an English tradition, but yeah. very different English tradition. Right. Um, and what's interesting, Milt, is that this, this, this sort of bifurcation of Israel's mm-hmm. military um, thinking finds its expression also in, in Israeli politics, there is a Wingadian tradition in Israeli politics, which is really Ehud Barak, who comes out of the the, um, the commandos, um, versus Yitzhak Rabin, who comes more out of the, the brigade tradition. Uh, Ariel Sharon comes out of the Wingate tradition. Levi Eshkol came out of the brigade tradition. These are people, as opposed to Barak, strikes quick, right? He goes to Camp David, tries mm-hmm. to end the whole conflict in one sort of master stroke, didn't succeed as opposed to robbing who built slowly along a, uh, a, a course um... but it was really, it, it all harkens back to Ord Wingate and I, 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 I actually if you go to michaeloran.com on, mm-hmm. uh, on your uh, on on your your web you'll see my article on Wingate and I, I, I strongly recommend I it I shall do so tomorrow, I, thank you
0: very much, uh, that's that's a fascinating aside right.
3: um,
0: with that let's pause quickly, take mm-hmm. care of some commercials then right back to the funds. And by the way, on our audio archive, the most recent program we've put up is um, the one we did last week on the new anti-Semitism. That, I think, will interest those who haven't yet heard it, and those who have may want to listen to it again. You just go to WGNRadio.com, and then you go down the left margin where all the so-called talent are listed, and click on my name, and that takes you to our special WG, uh, or special extension 720 site, where you've got access to the audio archive, and also to Milt's file, where we put up every day some three or four important articles from the world press, usually bearing upon international relations and other such matters, though one today bears on the art of biography, as you will see when you get to it. We always also put in a musical site drawn from the Internet, and I think the one we've got up today is uh, some classical music, Uh, Yes, I believe it's um, a uh, Bach unaccompanied cello sonata uh, done by Lynn Harrell. But right now, time to get uh, back to the phones in a moment, but I do also want to go to some of the email that has accumulated. And uh, let me try this one. Uh, Do you regard U.S. democracy building in Germany and Japan as appropriate models for democracy building in, quote, Palestine? There seems to be a major difference to me. That is, the U.S. efforts after World War II came after devastating military defeats of Germany and Japan. Is something similar required vis-à-vis Palestine? Well,
1: I think that the, the Palestinians have suffered a terrible defeat. they but they're not even, under our
0: power the way not under Germany our power. Japan but were.
1: They are. They have been defeated militarily. Their economy, as I said, is in ruins. There's there's rampant unemployment. There's no development. Uh, even their physical infrastructure has been seriously um, damaged uh, I think it's a I think it's it's not inappropriate to the United States to say okay we are willing to help you recover and you know a, in a Marshall plan type way mm. if you choose a government that is not going to support terror that it's going to make a, an historical reconciliation with the Jewish people on the basis of a, a two-state solution I think it, it's a perfectly legitimate, um position and it does uh, derive in some measure albeit you know as they say in in, in academia mutatis mutandis with, with with obvious differences apart it, you can derive from the treaty with with the with Germany and Japan
0: another email which hits an obvious but very important point uh, I have read that Palestinian school children are taught from anti-Semitic texts and that hatred of Jews is established is an established part of their schooling if this is true um was it also true prior to 1967? How can a society that demonizes and dehumanizes its opponents agree to any peace without rejecting uh, their own illusions?
1: Hmm. Well, the textbooks have been a particularly pernicious source of, uh, of, uh, of hatred of Israel, hatred of Jews, and, 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 and one of the primary sources for the perpetuation of the Arab-Israeli conflict. I remember looking at textbooks back in, in, in the West Bank in, uh, that had been, come from Jordan um, in the late 1970s, the textbooks you'd have a mathematical question was, uh, you know, you have 10 Jews. We came along and shot eight. How many of them are left? That was a typical mathematical question. Um, they've since become uh, far more uh, bloodthirsty. A, a, a Palestinian. Um, there was a film made of a Palestinian kindergarten in Gaza only last week that showed five-year-old Palestinian kids being asked to dip their hands in red paint. And to reenact the lynching of Israeli reservists in Ramallah at the outbreak of the Intifada. And by the way, Milton, when I was serving in, in the army at the time, the reserve, they thought it was me. They, they, they hadn't they couldn't account for me. They came to my house and asked where, where I was. They thought that those two reservists, one of those two reservists, was me. Um, this ones, is very typical these, these are the guys
0: they hung out of the yes, prison yes, windows? yes, and, and
1: they, they mutilated them. Oh uh, Israeli uh, pa- Palestinian children uh, routinely go to summer camps where they learn to make bombs. They parade in the well, streets wearing pla- wearing uh, wearing cardboard bombs. Um, now, in the, in the Oslo Accords of 1993, it specifically says that the Palestinian children must be educated for peace, that there be no, no incitement in the textbooks. And this uh, part of Oslo was never applied. There was no accountability, neither from the Israeli side nor from the American side. Um, and now, now the United States is going to condition its future support for the Palestinian Authority and the future Palestinian state on the elimination of incitement from, um, from education.
0: But you've got a a few generations which have been socialized along these lines for many years. You don't get over such
1: deep attitudes very easily. No,
0: it would be very, very difficult. 591 7200. Let's go back to the phones. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, No? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah,
3: hi. I'm pretty sure I appreciate you giving me sort of uh, historical perspective there and giving it enough time to develop the. The point. I'm asking a question. I don't know the answer to this question, but I believe it's still the case that there are still relatively generous tax subsidies for Israelis to move into the West Bank. Isn't that still the case even as of today?
1: I don't know for certain. There were uh, significant benefits offered to Israelis as incentives to live in the West Bank. Well, you know, there are, let me just finish one other thing, and that is that there are incentives to for Israelis to live in various other places as well, not just the West Bank. For example, if you live in a lot, you live in a tax-free zone. If you live um, in areas along the border, for example, along the Golan border, you have all sorts of incentives. There are development towns that Israel is trying to save from economic ruins. There are all sorts of incentives. The, the tax structure and the benefit structure in Israel is, is geared, but the, de- the West Bank settlements are certainly a part of it. You're right.
3: And my question is, why is it not possible for the Israeli government, if they're truly interested in peace, and and you emphasize that the settlements are maybe not the biggest issue, and they're certainly no longer necessary for defense, not at least in the last year or two, why is it not possible for the Israeli government to simply unilaterally declare that they will no longer encourage in any way financially, simply change the tax structure so that they do not encourage anybody to move into the West Bank? And the unilateral just right now, today, throw that in. Why, why, if, why not do that as a essentially free cost and measure if they're serious about someday getting out? And, and I think that's something that uh, a lot of Americans pause. Why are they still supporting people to move in? They ultimately are going to have to move them back out.
1: It's an interesting interesting thought and and I tell you, there's a part of me that's very much in favor of that. Um, I I would even go a little bit further and say that this would have been a good opportunity to dismantle some of the far-flung settlements in the West Bank around which there is no national consensus and it could not have been construed by the Palestinians as Jews running under fire from Palestinian arms because Mm -hmm. they've suffered defeat. But I understand why the Israeli government and not only Ariel Sharon's government, Yitzhak Rabin's government and Enhud Barak's government hesitated to make that that type of move, and that is that it would be interpreted as the Palestinian by Palestinians as saying, "Okay, terror works. You blow up enough Jews, and they'll stop giving subsidies to to uh, to to settlements. They'll stop supporting the settlements. They'll let the settlements dry up." Um, and then once you've made that decision to uh, – there's another difficult aspect of this that once you've made the decision to cut off subsidies to settlements, some of these settlements are vital to Israeli security, and you don't want to uh, undercut their viability as I'm not, I,
3: and Again, um, I'm not suggesting they cut off any support to what they have now. What I'm suggesting is people to move in in the future, starting at whenever they want to do it, tomorrow, week.
1: Sir, then sir, on, sir, I must no tell you, I'm afraid.
0: Sorry, I must tell you, I'm afraid that your signal is breaking up. But uh, can I can I respond to? I heard please, enough of it though. Please do. That yes. is, I,
1: I think it's I think it's I think I think yours is a constructive idea. I can see merit in it.
0: Um, I've got an email from a listener who says that uh, he or she has gone to Michael B. Oren. Uh, dot com and uh, doesn't get you, but you. Michael
1: also, dot com, without the B. It's one word, Michael Oren. Uh, well,
0: actually, that's what he says. <laughs> but, in fact, he then gives uh, uh. that address in uh, uh, in blue so one can hit it directly. And I hit the mm. one that he supplied, and it does, in fact, come to your site. Okay. I have it in front of me now. Mm. So it's com, Right. Um, and we do have here not only stuff about your book, but a number of your... I just hit the articles uh, link, and you've got a number of articles. And here's the one you were talking about, Ord Wingate, Friend Under Fire. Yes. Is that a book that you did actually? It's an article.
1: It's an article, an article. about Wingate um, in my in the Journal of the Shalem Center, Azure, um, mm-hmm. where I take on some of the revisionist historians. They've attacked Wingate. Uh, yeah. They attacked any great figure in Zionist history and, and uh, I've uh, come to his defense. I've just now brought it up
0: and I'm printing it so that I can read it but I'm so glad you mentioned the revisionist historians. That was something mm-hmm. I meant to talk with you about and you've just reminded me. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of Is- Israeli scholars, I don't know how many, but quite a few, and journalists who for some time have been arguing essentially we're here illegitimately this place really belongs to the palestinians Mm -hmm. and they are right and we are wrong and we have to and we've been living with fictions for years and years. It rather reminds me of American professors who denounce America all the time.
1: It's very similar. It grows out of a very similar radical tradition from yeah. the 60s, a revisionist, relativist tradition, um, a deconstructionalist position. Um, and uh, this was, it, it really reached its its apogee in the mid 90s. It started in the mid 80s um, under um, under leadership of uh, Professor Avi Schleim of Oxford, Ilan Pape of Haifa and Benny Morris, of um, lightly of, of ben Gurion University in the Negev. there. But there are significant differences between these scholars. Avi Schleim and Elon Poppy are, are non-Zionist, anti-Zionist. Well, Benny Morris <laughs> is a Zionist. Do he's they very the, critical of Israeli policy. Do the most radical
0: of them want the deconstruction of and the abandonment of yes. the Jewish state? As yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. Uh, Elon Poppy actually s- defines I- Israeli revisionist history as an attempt to invalidate the, the Zionist idea. And it looks and forward, and,
0: then, to a binational non uh, not officially Jewish state
1: right a binational arab jewish state yeah. uh, in, in the country um, and it became the, the the revisionist school became very prevalent very influential in in universities um in Great Britain and across north america now the the tide has has started to turn somewhat my my book, which is not a revisionist history um is, 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 I think is a sign of that times, and the fact that I've been invited to speak in these universities, whereas maybe three or four years ago I haven't been. This is a product firstly of the outbreak of violence in the Middle East two years ago. Um, Benny Morris has, sim- has recently come out and, and, um, and criticized the Palestinians, declared that he's no longer a revisionist historian, that uh, he, he acknowledges <laughs> that the people who said that Arafat was a terrorist were right all along, it's much to the chagrin of many of the universities who had invited him to speak. Um, and they, and interestingly enough, my book got, has, has received a, a a very warm reception by Arab scholars. And in the Guardian of London, which is not known for its pro-Israel sympathies, I had a glowing review by none other than Avi Schlein. So, so I think that perhaps maybe we're coming to a um, a new era in the historiography of the Arab-Israel conflict where we can not that will not be so radically polarized. Um, but as you know, this may reflect
0: something which is almost a universal tendency. Um, And that is that in democratic countries, the intelligentsia, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences, tend to live on an oppositional orientation, opposition to the uh, normative standards of their own society.
1: It's true. There are all sorts of historical reasons of that, too. Uh, the 60s were very influential in this country, and many of the people who were f- that f- for whom the 60s were their formulative period are today uh, senior-tenured posi- oh, professors in, in, in universities. They've it's taken f- over the American universities, I can uh, tell c- you. C- c- yeah. c- certainly. So, um, in Israel, it's no different. It, it's not an accident that, that both Elon and Adish come from that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, but I... By contrast, I I've actually paid for this for dearly for many, many years where it was hard for me to publish articles because of my, uh, my position on history. I, 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 I clung to this rather quaint 19th century belief that there is an objective truth out there and that even I in my subjectivity can never attain it. It is, it is, it is incumbent upon me to strive for it. Uh, and like, so much like a, a mathematician will strive for absolute zero, but never knowing n- he'll never attain it.
0: Well, you're one kind of Jew, and Jacques derrida is another. right. Uh, and we have to <laughs> pause for some overdue commercials.
1: And in the time available, we'll try to work in
0: a number of additional calls. You are on the air. Good evening.
2: Good evening. Uh, there's clearly a faction among Palestinians that wants to prevent peace with Israel, and they're supported by Iran, Iraq, and Syria. So my thinking is for peace to emerge in the Middle East, you've got to have, Regime change in Iraq, sponsored by America. Uh, I think
0: we have that in mind.
2: I think we do. Uh, And secondly, the other positive trend is that it looks like the moderates in Iran are gaining power, and you may have regime change there, which leaves Syria as the supporter Mm -hmm. of this group that doesn't want peace with Israel. Um, Now, if we could somehow get peace between Israel and Syria after those first two developments, Mm -hmm. then you've... Uh, first of all dramatically reduce the support for that hardline faction among Palestinians and you've also cut off that factions uh, sort that their uh, lines of resupply and escape and make them dramatically uh, weaker in doing so and then you've got a situation where uh, a moderate Palestinian uh, group could emerge. I'm wondering uh, first of all if you think that's a valid hypothesis and then secondly uh, why can't Israel make peace with Syria?
1: Hmm. Well, several questions in one. I would agree that um, that a change of regime in Iraq, a change of regime in in Iran, and ultimately in Syria itself would uh, contribute to the to the search for peace in the Middle East and strengthen those Palestinian elements that are interested in a in a, in a final settlement with Israel. I do not however think that it's the, the panacea. I think that that essentially the Palestinians themselves have to make this sea change in their in their point of view that a majority of the Palestinians mm-hmm. have to say okay we're not going to support terror. We're going to accept the offer that was put on the table by by Ehud Barak and, and President Clinton.
2: Mm-hmm. Um and I agree with that. I just don't think that faction that really wants peace with Israel is going <laughs> to be able to do that until the hardline faction is much weaker than it is
1: today.
0: Mm-hmm. You know when, with,
1: I, I'm sorry but I'm also curious. I to know why you, I wanted to respond to your question: Why Israel can't make peace with Syria? Yes, please. Both uh, Yitzhak Rabin, both Yitzhak Rabin, Ehud Barak, and Bibi Netanyahu, from the other side of the political spectrum, essentially offered a land for peace deal with the Syrians. All right. At one point, there was even some some conversations between Barack and um, and uh, Frusciusara, the the Syrian president. You, father, you mean offering to, offering to give back the Golan Heights? Essentially, essentially offering to give back the Golan Heights. It's, it's 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 a it's a it's a, um, it's a repeat of that Jul- June 19, sixty seven author. Um, why can Israel make peace with Syria? Essentially, because Syria has not want peace with Israel. Uh, why Syria doesn't want to make peace with Israel is a very complicated question. It has to do with the nature of the Baathist regime in Damascus, which is an Alawite regime representing a, a minority, a 13% 13% minority uh, in 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 Syria. It's a hated minority. And they, they need this conflict as a way to continue uh, to maintain the legitimacy as a, as a regime. There's an interesting side note in uh, President Bush's speech of a few days ago,
0: where he pointed to Syria and he said, those who are not uh, with us are against us in the search for peace, and Syria must give up its sponsorship and its financial uh,
1: backing mm-hmm. of Hezbollah. That's, that's, in many ways, that's the least of it. Uh, Hezbollah has, uh, Syria in the last week has been cooperating with uh, American efforts to crack down on Al-Qaeda operatives. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Damascus is host to a number of, of some of the most vicious terrorist organizations in the world. Yeah. Um, and Bush simply was put going on record as saying you can't play both sides at once. You're either with us or against us. Have you no. ever, our thanks to the caller, have you ever heard the name Sadiq al azam Sure. You yes. know him? Yes, sir uh he of course is a, a I talked a, to him he he was actually helped me with the research on this book did he <laughs> yes thank it. he's thanked it, i think in the acknowledgments
0: he is of course a Syrian uh, intellectual at right. the University of Damascus it's yeah. an old friend of mine from Yale University days right and um he is one of the major figures in an organization whose name is something like the Society for the Secularization of Islam uh, who i believe don't know
1: about that one but they, it's interesting
0: they, they, yeah. or for secular Islam. Yeah. They, they argue that there's too much Islamic religious presence uh, seeping into governmental operations. Yeah. and the sep- They call for a separation, essentially, of mosque and state.
1: I don't think it has a great future right now in the Middle East, but uh, essentially that is, that is what the Ba'ath regime has always stood as. Ba'ath is, is a secular movement. Yeah. Um, in recent years they've adopted a more Islamic um, um, sort of uh, mien, though they themselves are part of an Alawite, which is a heterodox Shiite uh, group. Mm-hmm. It's related to the Druze, um, and it's interesting that they've adapted almost a Sunni sort of worldview. Um, but this is for for political reasons. It's very difficult to talk about secularization in the Arab world. You know, there's no word for secular in Arabic. They had to, they had to come up with a new one. <laughs> there's no in traditional Arabic. There's no word. Well, for secular.
0: Ne- neologisms will do. Will we'll do. So. Right. Uh, we are just about out of time. Um, uh, you enjoy life in Israel. You are an American, after all, by origin. Uh, enjoy? <laughs> Wrong word.
1: <laughs> Put it this way. I, I've lived in, in Israel most of my life. My children are Israeli. I have a son in the army, in a, in an elite unit. Um, I love the state of Israel. I love um, I love living there. Um, but it is it is not an easy life. It's a tense it was, time, of course. but it, it's always been a tense time. We've uh, ever since I've sure. lived there. I don't know how many wars I've lived through, how many mm. crises, how many terrorist attacks. Economically, it's always a challenge. We live at a much different standard of living, and yet. Um, after having gone through this, and even this last chapter, which is the most difficult of all the last two years have been really been difficult than anything before, mm. with all that, um, I have no regrets and wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: I thank you very much for having joined just the book by Michael Oren, Six Days of War is published by Oxford University Press. A quick word about tomorrow night's program. Uh, Scott Appleby, who was the main Catholic layman addressing the bishops down in Dallas, is an old friend of ours. He's from Notre Dame University. He'll be with us tomorrow night as we discuss the future of American Catholicism. Two other guests, both of them uh, also students of Catholic history and American Catholic life, Paul Griffiths of the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Christopher Wolfe of Marquette University. Join us in what I think will be an exceptionally interesting program. On Friday night, we get a little bit lighter as we talk about uh, travel with Al Solomon of the Chicago Tribune and with two uh, well-established travel agents. And with that, we come to the end of the available time. Thanks to all for listening. Back again tomorrow at nine.